0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Peter Erskine is joining us. He's a lifelong drummer. Peter Erskine is known for the diversity of his work, appearing on over 700 albums and film scores. 50 albums have been recorded that Erskine was bandleader or co-leader of. And some of the bands and artists he's played with include Weather Report, Joni Mitchell, Steely Dan, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Diana Krall, Pat Metheny. We could keep on going. He's also a producer, an all-around artist. It's a great pleasure to be welcoming the legendary Peter Erskine. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Paul. That was a very generous introduction. I appreciate it, and uh, I'm very happy to be here on your podcast.
0: What would you say was the original purpose
1: of the art that you create? Well, I I think uh, the original purpose, it's it's an interesting question. No one's ever quite put it that way before. The original purpose was was to have fun. There's a a joy in making music, and, and there's an actual joy in playing an instrument. That joy becomes compounded when you can make music with others. There's a magical effect, the chemistry and the synergy, the things that occur when when the rhythm begins to flow and and all the elements come together. That's why I've never really, uh, for all the drum solos I may have taken over the years, I've never really been so interested in developing the art of the drum solo. I'm more interested in the art of collaboration.
0: What is it about collaboration that you like so much?
1: Now, like the saying goes, it takes a village. <laughs> you can create more when you utilize the talents of others. And as beautiful as, as a single voice can be singing it, there's, there's something else when you, when you combine voices and the role of the drums Just looking at the drum set, which has been in existence for a little over a hundred years, it's a team instrument. I mean, it's, it's at this, at the center of, of what jazz music, which is a music of improvised dialogue, utilizing call and response and the blues language as, as well as the swing feel. I mean, that's what we do and, and all other contemporary, let's say American music. Uh come out of that that paradigm, really,
0: you know at one point, I was doing this interview with j mo from the Allman Brothers band, and he was saying kind of something similar to what you were saying about how integral jazz music is to American music, and he said he encountered somebody who said that they didn't like jazz, and he told them, You don't like American music then,
1: <laughs> well, you know. Whatever your musical taste might seem to be, jazz is, is, is the genesis of just about all the contemporary music, not, not only because of the invention of the drum set, but the whole development of, of the call and response, improvisational music. If, if, if you're a fan of, of Grateful Dead jams, then you're a jazz fan, whether you know it or not.
0: Hmm. Do you think that jazz gets enough respect?
1: Uh, jazz gets its deserved amount of, of, of being made fun of because there is a bit of an elitist component that we tend to uh, encourage in, in each other and, and and carry forward, I think. Sometimes unwittingly so. But it's also a perception that, that the quote-unquote outsiders have of jazz and and that was all reinforced by the image of you know the jazz musician who turns his or her back to the audience and in part because the jazz response quite similar to m- many classical musicians in the pursuit of their art it's not necessarily pursued as a music of entertainment if you compare let's let's say uh, two saxophonists you compare Wayne Shorter to Kenny G before anyone starts screaming by that comparison the only reason i bring it up is is if you look at at the two gentlemen's faces when they play Kenny G is is very aware of his audience and and communicating with his audience you know he 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 makes googly eyes almost when he when he plays you know, he, He uses his eyebrows he's like you know he's trying he's he's treating his saxophone playing as uh in the same way a vocalist might who's really trying to connect with his or her audience whereas wayne is totally involved with the music and he would play the notes he would play whether there was anyone listening or not because it's the musical the musical goal is 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 unchanged by that entertainment quotient you know so i think that's a that's a big difference i mean jazz doesn't give a shit whether somebody likes it or not <laughs> <laughs> i mean we, we should and if people go to all the trouble to leave their homes and come out to a concert of course we want to make the 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 evening an enjoyable one musically rewarding as well as uh, entertaining to some degree but it's not the it's not the end all and the jazz audience is quite happy if, if they hear and sense that the the artist has shared a moment of, of searching and communicating, versus you know da 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 da. Here we put on a show for you. Does that make sense? By the way,
0: yeah, it does. It does. You said when I was asking you about the original purpose of of the art that you're creating, you said. One of the first words you used was "fun," mm-hmm. and I'm wondering. Of course, I'm sure you have fun, but has that purpose has it changed in any ways through the years?
1: No, not really. You know, we all go through various stages of growth, and and a lot of that has to do with our our, our wrestling with the instrument at, at various levels of development, and and getting beyond th- that one wrestling bout to the next set of challenges but the the fun I, i i hope will always be there and now the fun is there because i really enjoy the craft i love to play i'm not quite so interested in doing the amount of touring that i used to when i was younger and i'm a little little more selective in general about how should i put it playing opportunities or my playing environment. You know, when you get older, you just, you start to think like, well, life is relatively short. So I'm going to, I'm going to spend my time making the kind of music I want to make or doing the kind of projects that I just will feel good about.
0: This could be a difficult thing to put into words, but how would Peter Erskine define good music?
1: <laughs> um, any kind of art is, is uh, subjective. Uh, that's the whole point, I think. I mean, there are some objective rules uh, in terms of aesthetics, things that that you know, have been proven to work over time or not. Uh, for me, the the success of 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 a piece of music would depend on that music's ability to touch someone. And when it comes to drumming, that that generally means: does it dance? Does it make somebody want to dance? Any kind of art should initiate some emotional response from the person who's listening to it. So I, th- I think any 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 kind of art you're just hoping to communicate, and and again, that's that's why the ensemble thing is is fun because you're communicating not only to the person or persons in the audience, but you're communicating with the other communicators, as it were, and to be able to engage in simultaneous dialogue is it's one of the things that's unique to music if you listen to old dixieland stuff it's just a a miracle of of creativity and 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 sound that these various instruments can all be playing at the same time and somehow they 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 play in perfect harmony you know yeah i that's that's one of the interesting things about Getting older, I was I was talking about this with pianist Kenny Warner, and he said he was noticing that a lot of his colleagues, drummers about my age, you know, in their mid sixties or older, who were you know the younger cats not so long ago, how our our drumming is using more and more elements of older music. We're finally able to, I think, appreciate and understand a lot of what I think. Perhaps when we were younger, we thought, was, oh, that's some old stuff. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting older sounding the older I get. Uh, <laughs> and because I teach at the University of Southern California, the Thornton School of Music at USC, you know, I want to feel like I'm being more all current, you know, being more current. But I'm sincerely more attracted to older and older music. So it's a little bit of a, a teaching dilemma for me because I, I'm... I, you know, I, I used to always think I knew what was hip. I'm not sure I know what's hip anymore, but I know what, what's always been hip. <laughs> it's
0: interesting that you mentioned that about Dixieland music, because here I'm a guy born in the 80s, and something that I have been digging into for quite some time has been the traditional New Orleans jazz. So you like that that kind of music?
1: Yes. I'm not nearly as knowledgeable as I ought to be. I came across a drum set a couple of years ago at a vintage drum show. And I'm not a a, a, a smart collector to see something. Uh, oh, wow. And drummers are, are known for always needing another snare drum. You know, we're always looking to buy something. But there was a, a drum set in perfect condition, the museum quality kit from 1935 It was a 25th anniversary kit for the Ludwig Company, which had opened its doors in 1910. A large 28-inch bass drum in this marvelous blue and silver, uh, they call it the Duco paint, kind of spray painted. A Chinese tom-tom, a wonderful old snare, some of the contraptions the drummers used to play back then. And I just had to have it. So I bought it. And it's almost like a benediction of sorts. Most every morning I'll I'll sit down at the kit and play a little bit just to remind myself, this is where the instrument came from. Hmm.
0: Interesting. I wanted to talk about an artist who passed away just the other day. He was a guest on this show, the late Patrick Williams. Hmm. He did an album, home sweet home. Maybe one of my favorite recordings from the past couple of years and I'm hoping you can tell us about that album, Home Sweet Home.
1: Yeah, Pat Pat was a dear friend. Uh, I began listening to him when I was 13 or 14 years old. He had made a series of albums when he was living in New York. He was a younger ranger. He was only in his 20s. He, he began making these albums. He's great. There were big band albums, but pretty much without saxophones. It was just trumpets, trombones, and French horns and rhythm section. And he created a, a sound, you know, the Pat Williams sound that, that everybody loves, that sound. And and uh, anyway, I, I'll just give a little bit of a quick history. The, uh, the first time I, I got to work with Pat was in, I think it was 1979 or, or 1980. I think it was 79, on a film called Used Cars, starring Kurt Russell. Now, uh, anyone listening to this, if they haven't seen Used Cars it's really funny. It's an incredibly funny film. And Pat was brought in to replace a score that someone else had composed and he only had a couple weeks to do it. So, it's, And it's, it's just straight up and down, like just classic Pat Williams writing. And it was such a thrill to get to work with him. And then shortly after that, I moved to New York and uh, that was one of my big regrets that I didn't stay in Los Angeles so I could work more with Pat. Well, After I moved back to Los Angeles in 1987, got married and started a family, I did get a chance to work with Pat. It was an album called Sinatra Land, uh, where Pat had arranged a number of tunes that had been made popular by Frank Sinatra. But instead of featuring a vocal, these would feature instrumental soloists. And I was one of the soloists. The tune was um, In the Still of the Night. And we just we had a great time working together, and and uh, happily, Pat called me for a number of projects. Uh, one of them was uh, titled Aurora, and then Home Sweet Home. And and meanwhile, we had done a lot of recordings where he was brought in as an arranger, oftentimes Christmas albums. I've done a number of Christmas albums with Pat, and and that was the last thing, in fact, that we worked on for. Uh, I think Martina McBride, I believe that's her name, the uh, Nashville singer. And that yeah, that was uh, sadly the last thing we worked on. But the big project of the last couple of years was Home Sweet Home. And this was a special one. Pat brought Dave Grusin in to play piano. The pieces were inspired by and dedicated to the members of his family, his wife, Catherine, and his three children. I mean, that was the Home Sweet Home suite. And then he wrote a tune for Buddy Rich called That's Rich. And he was excited to show it to me. He said, I you know, wrote a drum feature. And I remember at the session, I said, hey, Pat, could we maybe change the title to That's Mel? So I could play it more in the style of Mel Lewis, because that's, <laughs> that's a lot more in, in my wheelhouse than than Buddy Rich. And, and he said, no, 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 it's, it's it's for Buddy. He said, you know, do your thing. But of course... If something's written for Buddy, you 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 want to try to incorporate some of that vocabulary. The album was recorded at Capitol Studios. It was engineered by the great and legendary Al Schmidt. And it was similar to the other stuff we'd done. You when you walked into a Pat Williams state, you knew that everything was going to sound great. You knew that there'd be just plenty of opportunities for the stuff to swing and plenty of opportunities to to do the little shaping things that the drummers like to do to the music. It was just fun. I mean, imagine a recording session where after every tune that we'd run down in rehearsal or record, the orchestra breaks out in applause for Pat. We were just all so impressed by, by all this music he had written. And the band that he put together was, was you know, the, f- the finest musicians in Los Angeles, including uh, Wayne Bergeron playing lead trumpet, Tom Scott, Bob Shepard, just, wow, a great band. What a fun album.
0: If you had to describe Pat Williams to someone who'd never met him, how would you say that he was or is?
1: Uh, simply just one of the nicest people I'd ever met. Here, I'll tell you a story about Pat. This is Pat. We had uh, we had rehearsed to do a couple of nights at, at a at a club in Los Angeles, a place called Fatello's, a terrific Italian restaurant. It was a f- fun jazz club to play in, and the the woman who who booked the band, April Williams, was just all, you know a real sweetheart, a real mensch. I mean, always you know Is everybody okay? Everybody happy? And I had had some red wine with dinner before the show, and and. Uh, she said, Peter, do you want some more red wine? And I was, you know, uh, up on the bandstand. I, I said, sure. So she brings brings me a, it was a lot of red wine. And I'm drinking it kind of like it's soda pop. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, when you drink red wine and play the drums, you begin to make drumming choices that maybe uh, aren't the best. <laughs> and one of my uh, graduate students from USC, a wonderful drummer named Jake Reed, he was in the audience, and, and I was a little bit concerned by the end of the night. I said, uh, how was it? He goes, no, it was, it was okay. He said, it's not the best I've ever heard you play, but it was, it was okay. And I knew that was polite speak for, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, 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 I showed up early, hoping to run into Pat, and I did. And I said, hey, Pat. And he goes, hey. And I said, I, I wanted to apologize. He said, for what? I said, for last night. I I said, uh, I'm sorry, I I had too much to drink. And he he just smiled, and and he said, said, what? He said, no, don't worry. He said, we all had too much to drink. (laughs) And I realized that that was his way of telling me that he knew that I knew that he knew (laughs) that I'd had too much to drink. But he was being – it was like a – it was like a good father, you know, where the son kind of messes up, but the dad realizes he doesn't have to hammer the point home. The son knows so, and so it was just this really lovely. I, I you know, it just it hit me very strongly. Like, it, and 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 your your initial impulse not only is one of gratitude, but like you don't want to disappoint this this person now. So, of course, now I'm I'm just I'm just having seven up. And we we played uh, played the first tune of the first set. <laughs> and Wayne Bergeron, the lead trumpet player, the trumpets were set up just to to the side of me. And he's just a couple people away. And uh, boom, we finished the last chord. And Wayne is putting his horn down on the trumpet stand. And, and I hear him turn and say to the other trumpeters, he goes, He's back. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm I'm generally known as being a relatively responsible and you know, the kind of big band drummer who would underplay a situation versus overplay the night before I was overplaying. But anyway, that that's the kind of guy Pat was. He's the kind of guy that the, the thought of a cheap victory would never occur to him. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I want to shift the conversation in the direction of Dr. Um (laughs) Umband. Why is On Call your favorite album yet?
1: Well, that's, you know, I mean, I think any band leader I've ever known, what's your favorite album? Uh, The new one, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I like it because the yin-yang of the studio compared to the live is fascinating to me. I love the constrained energy in the studio and I love the unconstrained energy of the live performance and being able to listen to the two sets of the same musicians in the same time period who are playing with the same kind of from the same set of motivating circumstances or something, but, but the setting's different, you know? And I just love how the band has developed. These are great musicians, uh, John Beasley, Bob Shepherd and Benjamin Shepherd are such a joy to make music with. And it's fun, you know, I I was missing the higher energy stuff, the kind of more straight eighth-notey thing, the the energy that good fusion music had. And when I say good fusion music, I mean fusion music that doesn't sound like stupid or dated. There's a lot of music from, from the 70s that that looks like the, the clothes that the people were wearing when they were playing it. You know, it just looks very, it sounds very period. Silly hairdos and sideburns and bell-bottom pants. And Weather Report, for example, I never got that feeling. And it's kind of the same when I listen to most Beatles tracks. They just sound great. I was listening to Norwegian Wood the other day. and I just marveled at how good the song sounded and it wasn't like, Oh, these sounded good because it was the mid sixties. It's just, it sounded great, you know? Yeah. So, so weather report had that same kind of thing. And like, I can, I can listen to a, a return to forever performance and I'm, I'm dazzled by the playing, but it's hard for me to kind of figure out just musically what's going on. The same with Mahavishnu. It was it was incredible playing, but playing levels beyond what any of us had known. But it's it's kind of strange music to my ears now, and I hope that doesn't seem judgmental. I don't mean it that way. I have great respect for all those players, but some music just seems to have aged better than others. And and I think this Dr. Um on call, it just seems like that. It seems like music that that as a result of, of, of musical inspiration that has aged well and, and hopefully will we'll still have a good shelf life.
0: And just to give the listeners a little bit of, of filling them in a little bit, you were mentioning that there's the contrast of the studio and the live. So everyone out there, it's a double album, one studio and the other live. What gave you the decision to do that?
1: It's kind of a, happenstance, you know, circumstance. We were invited to do some recording at Sweetwater Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The manager and engineer of the studio, a great engineer named Mark Hornsby, was running what amounted to kind of an engineering camp. And so we were playing in a a fishbowl of sorts. So these engineers who we worked with for like three days were our audience. And it's fun to be in a studio and have an audience and, yeah i mean wow when sinatra recorded in the studio it was always with an audience There were always in you know a lot of chairs set up people were invited to to be there and for all the talk i was doing about the art existing in the vacuum there is a good energy that you get from people when they're listening and listening intently yet we were we were in the studio and we're we're all of a sudden, we're like, hey, this is pretty good, you know, and, and, and we could, we could make an album, but we only had enough material for what was considered an album back in the days of, of vinyl, you know, less than 40 minutes or approximately 40 minutes of music. And so, well, that seems a little, uh, although I think that's, that's about as much as people can, can stand to listen to in one sitting. It seemed a little shy of a CD. Then, we went on tour, and unbeknownst to us, a front-of-house engineer captured the whole night in Pro Tools on, a, on his laptop computer, which our road manager and booking agent just happened to see. And he got the files, and then, of course, we cooperated with the engineer to, to remix this stuff, and, and Mark Hornsby remixed it along with my engineer here in L.A., a guy named Aaron Walk. And we're like, Wow. This is also really great, and it's different music. I don't want to have to make the choice. Sorry, long answer, but that's that's it.
0: You were just referencing Weather Report, and as I mentioned at the top of the interview, there's just been so many bands and artists that you've worked with. Weather Report, Joni Mitchell, Diana Krall, Pat Metheny, Steely Dan, could you say that there has been one band or artist that it was the most thrilling for you to work with?
1: Well, Weather Report was, was the big game changer and door opener for me, but I think the most thrilling was, was, was probably doing the Joni Mitchell album, both sides now, and, and being able to perform that music with symphony orchestras across the U.S. back in uh, 2001. And, you know, uh, Herbie Hancock guested on a number of those concerts, and that I'll tell you a story about Herbie. We're we're playing in New York City, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, Herbie Hancock. You know, and we start this, uh, ding, 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 whatever, some kind of vamp. The great Chuck Berkhoffer is playing the bass. I'm playing the drums. It's just the two of us. And Herbie walks out on stage. People are applauding. He. Smiles, acknowledges the audience, sits down, he plays two chords. One, two, three, four, beep, bop. And it was interesting, Paul. It was like it was like being in a kung fu movie, and the energy that came from Herbie. I felt my right arm, wrist and hand just like just like moved into perfect rhythmic. Place, and it was it was like a physical effect. It, it it astonished me, and it was just like a kung fu move, you know, where the kung fu master does a thing, and then someone goes flying across the room. <laughs> I'm not imagining things. Herbie Hancock has the rhythmic ability of like a black belt kung fu master, and and that was that was kind of a life changing moment for me, and that was in the middle of this Joni Mitchell concert. I haven't. Ta- I don't know if I've talked to Herbie about it. I don't think I have. And if I did, he would just be humble and, and, and smile and laugh. Should I go on record? I will go on record. Please. Like, <laughs> I think for all the wonderful jazz musicians I've known, and I feel blessed to have known so many great musicians, Herbie Hancock is the single most talented jazz musician I've ever met. Wow. Just anything I ever hear him play, I go, yep, yeah, yeah, Herbie's, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> there, I've committed. And the Joni thing with the the, the the writing by Vince Mendoza, the chance to play this music in this new setting, that was just a once in a lifetime thing that would never happen again.
0: What is Joni like to work with Joni Mitchell?
1: She was great. I mean, Joni's voice fueled our dreams when, you know, when I was young and, and provided comfort and, and joy and inspiration and sorrow and, and just all those things when you're growing up, when you're looking for some external affirmation of, of what you're feeling. And that was Joni. So getting to work with her, she was a total professional. She did her homework. She, I mean, you know, what do you want from a from a singer? You want great pitch? Joni had it. Yeah, you want great rhythm? Joni had it. You want the ability to stand in front of whatever size ensemble and lead us into battle, Joni could do that.
0: It occurs to me you've had the chance to work with the absolute great artists of our time. You've had the chance to work in the world of education at USC. Mm -hmm. You've been able to lead bands You've been able to work in the studio. You've had a lot of chances to do things that are—they're amazing things. What would you say is the best thing about being Peter Erskine?
1: The—the oh. um, the only good thing about being me is—is is that I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm very lucky. And I think the best thing uh, about being Peter Erskine is that Peter Erskine's married to an incredible woman and has two great kids.
0: As they frequently say, behind every great man is a great
1: woman. <laughs> Boy, no no kidding. <laughs> yeah, I feel super, super lucky. And, you know, I mean, sure, luck is what it is. And, and then if people are able to grab that opportunity and make something out of it, then that's preparation. The people who have been the luckiest tend to be the people who have also prepared the best that have done their homework. You have to learn your instrument to the point where you, you can speak freely through it, whether it's your voice or your body as an actor or actress or an instrumentalist. So I recognize that being lucky is coupled with the fact that I put in the time, and I put in the time because I wanted to. I mean, I enjoyed it. And also because I was there again, I was lucky enough to have a family that supported me when I was growing up.
0: There are all these labels that someone
1: could apply to you,
0: drummer, producer. How would you define Peter Erskine? Drummer. Drummer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I remember years ago, my my percussion teacher, George Gaber, wonderful percussionist. And I think I was 12, all of 12 years old. I was taking lessons from him at a summer camp, and I started touting the word percussionist. And he kind of scoffed. He said... He said, we're drummers. <laughs> <laughs> said we're all drummers. I said, okay, cool. So yeah, I'm a I'm a drummer. And the other stuff is is uh, how should I put it? May I am a drummer that 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 likes wearing some different hats.
0: Well, all the listeners out there, they can visit Peter Erskine.com. Erskine is spelled E-R-S-K-I-N-E. I always like to close my interviews. I just give the guest the stage. I just let them take the microphone. It's totally
1: open-ended. Ah. What would well, you
0: say to our audience in closing?
1: Well, in closing, um, if, if, well, if I try to rack my brain for something smart or poetic. One thing I did want to say, and I don't want this to be my closing comment, but it's just timely because I've been working on the edit of, of a book I wrote called No Beethoven. And I've just updated the iPad or the iBook version, uh, which has literally thousands of, of photographs. Uh, I've always been a bit of a uh, chronicler. If I have any hobby, it would—I I think it would be photography. And I just happen to be the the person with the camera a lot of the times, particularly with weather report. And so there's a lot of a lot of photos. And if you're interested at all in in the music I've made or. The other musicians I've worked with, there's a lot of fly on the wall stories there. So pardon me for just wanting to mention that as a sign off. Hey, everybody, I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here because I think if you've tuned into this show, you appreciate the those good things in life. You know, just continue being good to one another. I, I think uh, the more direct kindness that that we can experience between all of us ourselves out in the real world. Get out of the bubble. You've you've had your chance. You've you've been at the computer with your iPhone. Now shut the damn thing off (laughs) and (laughs) go out and and make the world a better place. Well spoken. Thank Thank you you. very much. Hey, my pleasure, Paul. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. This has been fun. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Thanks, everybody. Peace out.
0: The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.